blessings of this book. So there are blessings to those who read and obey the words of this book. We've uh, moved from that to the magnificent, glorious picture of Christ, who he is, and then a picture of him walking with his church, walking in the midst of his church, walking among his churches. And then we looked at Jesus confronting his churches. So through seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. We've already looked at four of the seven churches. So just a little recap to Ephesus, the forgetful church. The call was for them to remember. So remember from where they had fallen, to repent, to return to their first love so that their lampstand, their influence would not be taken away. To Smyrna, the persecuted church, who in the face of persecution were not condemned, but they were encouraged to finish to the end, to continue to the end. To Pergamum, the compromising church, the church is called to repent of its compromise or else Christ is going to come and go to war against them. So what a scary thought. And then to Thyatira, as we saw last week, the corrupted church was, the call was for them to stop being more tolerant than Jesus himself and to begin to desire Christ again, to desire the morning star, the one who is. And this morning we come to the church at Sardis, which is the powerless church. And just a little background. Sardis was a city of past glories. It, was a, it had formerly been the capital of the ancient kingdom Lydia. Six centuries before this letter, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world, ruled by famous King Croesus, who the Greeks called Midas because of his um, golden treasure that he had amassed. At one point, Sardis was famous for their affluence, their creative culture, and they were the first to mint gold and silver into coins. Sardis was also a natural citadel. So they, it featured a steep cliffs to the rear, um, 1,500 feet tall or high um, cliffs to the rear, and a long, flat plain in front of them, basically making them indestructible. They could see anyone coming from in front. They were protected from behind. They had a mass, an amazing um, amount of, I guess, supplies by which they were able to, if someone came against them, they just held their, their ground, and then eventually they would come out with their weapons and they would win. Basically, at one point, Sardis was termed as the city that was indestructible. Except that defeat had happened on two different occasions. On one occasion in 549 B.C., the Persian soldiers actually scaled the cliffs behind when no one was looking, and they surprise attacked and defeated Sardis. If that wasn't bad enough, some 300 years later, the Syrians did the same exact thing. They scaled the cliffs, they opened the gates, and the city was destroyed. It was as though Sardis had, on two different occasions, had stopped Paying attention. It's almost as if Sardis had fallen asleep. And this maybe is the reason why Christ says, as we're about to read today in verse 3, wake up. Christ looks at them and says, wake up. I was talking to a few of you last night. I don't know if you live in this area. About from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, the weather around us last night said, wake up. Um, because it, man, the lightning, the thunder, our house was shaking, our bedroom was lit up. It was insane. I mean, we were, we, I was awake from 3 to, to around 5, and the weather was like, uh-uh, you're not going to sleep. It's not going not gonna to happen. And in the same way, but yet even in a more powerful way, Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. So this is a picture that Sardis would have understood very well. 
Yet unfortunately, the city of Sardis is like so many of us. We become so busy with life. We become so bombarded with difficult circumstances. Or perhaps we begin to believe that we, our own abilities will see us through. We're so confident in our own abilities that we become unaware of our spiritual need. There are so many days in our lives, brothers and sisters, where we don't feel how needy we actually are. We are always so needy, and we're always one step away from a fall. We often go through our everyday lives as though we don't have to deal with the foundation of our lives, not realizing that the foundation of our lives may have cracks in it, and those cracks may even be spreading. This kind of negligent thinking is usually accompanied, get this, by prayerlessness and by insensitivity to the Holy Spirit, by which we stop praying, we stop seeking His face, and we stop yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God. Let me make it very clear. A Christian that is too busy to get into the presence of God is a Christian that will soon find themselves in trouble, exactly like the church at Sardis did. Therefore, with that foundation laid, I want us to turn again to the words of Christ concerning his powerless and his dead church. And as we continue this morning, I want us to be reminded that although Jesus is addressing specific things in specific churches, this is also a letter written to all churches. Therefore, there's something here for all of us. Every single week as we're walking through these churches strategically, Jesus is speaking to us, the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, in a specific way each and every week. So yes, in one sense, specific churches without a doubt, but Jesus is speaking to us. May we continue to listen. May we not miss what he's saying to us so that we might overcome and not falter. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Revelation 3, 1 through 6, the words of Christ to his church in Sardis. And it says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember them, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and, I, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you this day and we have ears. Lord, help us to hear. Holy Spirit, enable us to hear. Jesus, we want to hear. Help us not just to hear, but to respond to that which you are saying, not just to a church 2,000 years ago, but to your church today. To this church, Father, First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, speak. Lord, fill us, God, with life. Fill us with your presence. God, fill us, Lord, as we have sang, Lord, with your grace upon grace upon grace. Life-giving grace. 
And as Pastor Jordan said at the beginning, Father, speak to us. Speak, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So it is a humbling moment when you realize that you are not who you thought you were. You're not who you thought you were. And certainly that had to be true at the church of Sardis. Imagine showing up for this church and you show up for the church at Sardis. You're ready to hear a positive, uplifting message. All of this is even um, just taken up a notch when you hear that Jesus had written your church a letter. You cannot wait to get to church so that you can hear what your Lord and Savior has to say. Imagine that. Imagine the anticipation. Then imagine coming in this church, sitting down, the pastor standing up, opening the letter and reading these words from your Lord and Savior. Dear Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. But you're dead. And although this is a word of rebuke, this is also a word of love. In love, Jesus was calling this church to stop deceiving themselves, to stop deceiving others, and instead begin to see what he sees so that they might see who they really are and become what he would have them to become. And strangely enough, this letter to Sardis, it doesn't bring to light any specific issues in the church, meaning Jesus doesn't talk about a lack of love. He doesn't talk about suffering. He doesn't talk about persecution. There's no mention of Jezebel, Jezebel, excuse me, or Balaam or the Nicolaitans. There's no mention of good works. You don't see any of that. Instead, you see nothing, which is precisely the point Jesus doesn't talk about any of those things because they're not there. The only thing that exists in this church is nothing. Only a reputation for being alive. And yet Jesus says, but you're dead. And this is where we must come to see and know. Please hear this. Most churches die long before they cease to exist. Most churches die long before they cease to exist. Adoniram Judson Gordon, a 19th century Baptist pastor put it this way he said ecclesiastical or church corpses lie all about us the caskets in which they repose are lined with satin and are decorated with solid silver handles and abundant flowers so basically he's saying church death is all around us and yet the churches look pretty they, they look pretty they have the flowers. They have everything on the outside. Then he says, like other caskets, they are just large enough for the occupants with no room for converts. The churches have died of respectability and have been embalmed in self-complacency. If by the grace of God this church is alive, be warned to our opportunity, or the feet of them that buried your sister Sardis will be at the door to carry you out too. Listen to those words. He's saying this, if by chance you as a church find yourself alive, understand it is the grace of God. Seize that opportunity so that those feet that buried Sardis do not come and bury us. Now this kind of gives us a picture today of where we're going. There's going to be times today in this message that this little vein in my forehead is going to pop out. Um, and it's going to seem like I'm very, very, very upset. And the, the reason is, is because I am. So I'm not going to beat around the bush. It's coming. I, my blood pressure is going to rise today. It's going to go out the, the roof. But it's, it's all for the sake of desiring life here and not death. So let us today unpack four truths. So one concerning Christ, three concerning 
this powerless, dead church at Sardis. Truth number one concerning Christ, Christ is characterized by his realization. Christ is characterized by his realization, meaning that he knows. He knows. The Lord presents himself to the congregation as the all-wise God. Look at verse 1 again. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. So there are two aspects of the exalted Christ emphasized here. First, Jesus says that he is one who has the seven spirits of God, which as we mentioned in week one, the, the number seven is a sign of completion or perfection. And the spirits of God is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, I have the Holy Spirit, the perfect Holy Spirit. Here's the point. Jesus is saying to this church, I have the Holy Spirit. You don't. Jesus is saying, I have life within me. You don't. You don't. Jesus had sent his spirit to this church, and this church's only hope for a future was to be revived again by that spirit. Just think about the work of the Holy Spirit. So think about the work of the Holy Spirit in saving us. According to the word of God, we are born again of the spirit of God. We are indwelt by the spirit of God. We are, according to Ephesians 1, sealed, praise God, by the spirit of God. God, we're sealed in him. And then think about our sanctification, meaning our growing in holiness or becoming more like Christ. The Bible says we're convicted by the Spirit of God, convicting of sin. We are conformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God, which is what Romans 8, 29, 30 tells us. We are taught by the Spirit, so the Spirit illuminates the Word of God to us. We can know the Word because the Spirit of God shows us, illuminates it to us, and then we are yielding to the Spirit. There is perhaps no more urgent message for the church today than the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, um, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who makes the church alive. And since this church is dead, it needs a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. It needs the Holy Spirit to revive what it, the church, has killed. John Stott writes these words. So Jesus reminds the church of Sardis that Christ has the Holy Spirit. It is he who can animate our dead works and make them pulsate with life. He can rescue a dying church and make it a living force in the community. And then he ends with these two questions. He dwells within you, but does he fill you? You possess him. But does he possess you? Listen, the Holy Spirit lives among you, but does he or lives in you, but does he fill you? You possess the Holy Spirit, but does, does the Holy Spirit have you? Does he have you? The second emphasis is that Christ holds the seven stars. As we talked about it during the church at Ephesus, during that time, the Roman Emperor Domitian was the Roman Emperor who, who reigned. If you remember, he was the a Roman emperor that very early on in his time, he declared himself to be God. He desired the worship, to be worshipped as God. So he loved emperor worship, what we talked about throughout these, these churches. He loved emperor worship. He wanted to be worshipped as God. In fact, he even, if you remember, he minted a coin of himself while he was still alive, which normally doesn't happen. And in this coin was a picture of him holding seven stars. So it's a picture. He is basically giving a coin to the people of the Roman Empire saying, I am God. Worship me as the one who upholds the universe. 
And to Domitian and to the seven churches, Jesus comes along and Jesus says, but I have the stars. I'm the one who holds the stars. So Jesus, from this ascended position on the, the right hand of God the Father, sitting down, is saying this to, to the church at Sardis and to Domitian. He's saying, I'm the one who rules over the stars and I'm the one who rules over the church. And I'm the one who rules over all that I have made. Here's where we have to understand that this Jesus, he guards, he protects, and he preserves his church. He is never, ever absent. There is never a moment by which we come together in his name that he is absent among us. No worship gathering is conducted by which Jesus is not here with us. No ministry is performed in his name where his hand is not upon us as we are serving and giving. No sermon is preached that Christ himself does not evaluate. No sin is committed that he doesn't know about. And then it gets really good for us as well. No tear is ever shed that he doesn't see. No pain is ever felt among us that he does not sympathize with us as our sympathizing high priest. No decision is ever made in our individual lives or the life of this church that he does not judge. Jesus is here and he knows. He knows. As we've said early on in this series, listen, Jesus has an opinion concerning his church and his opinion is ultimate. When all is said and done, the only opinion that matters concerning this church is his. Is his. So Christ is characterized by his realization. But then secondly, now moving to the church, the church is condemned for its reality. So the church is condemned for its reality. And what's the reality of this church? Verse 1 continues this way. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, most of us have heard the expression a time or two, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. Jesus didn't seem to follow that rule. In fact, all Jesus had, the only thing he had to say concerning this church is you're dead. And guess what? He said it. So he looked at this church and says, you have a reputation, but your reputation means nothing because all I see is death. What a devastating declaration that is. The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word nekros. And let me tell you what it means. It means dead. It means dead. There's no other use for it in the Bible. It means dead. So the picture is the city morgue. So the, the church had become a city morgue with a steeple on top. The church was a morgue with a steeple. Consider to what depths a church must fall for God to declare that church spiritually dead. The church could be widely known for its activity, its influence in the community. The church could be um, absolutely hustling and bustling, doing all kind of, of things. Yet in Christ's estimation, that church could still be dead. Obviously, what impresses us doesn't always impress him. Again, the words of John Stott, Sardis was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor, but outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. He goes on to say, it seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It had a name for virility, but it had no right to its name. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were but a thin disguise for the ecclesiastical corpse. The eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes to the skeleton. And then he says this, the church was dead and it even had begun to stink. The 
church was dead and had even begun to stink. And then think about this church. The church at Sardis was not troubled by persecution. The church at Sardis was not disturbed by heresy. The church at Sardis was not distressed by Jewish opposition. Again, this church was well known and was active. It was known for its vigorous congregation. It was characterized by its good works, its charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all of these activities came up short because Jesus said this, you have all of that, but you don't have my spirit, meaning you don't have life. This section definitely reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. When Jesus looked at them and said, all this on the outside is life and on the inside is death. Yet, here in the book of Revelation, Jesus is talking not to the Pharisees, he's talking to the church that he died to purchase. He's talking to a church he died to purchase, saying the same words of the Pharisees, you're dead. Listen, this this letter to Sardis ought to alert us to the fact that the church can be confident in its place in the community. It can be increasing in membership. It can be energetic in its religious activity. It can be liquid in its financial assets. It can be fervent in its outreach to the um, broader culture. And yet, according to Jesus, it can still be dead. It's a very sad thing when the only accomplishment of the church is the name that they've given themselves. Yeah, I hear a lot today about church marketing, church marketing. And you know what this reminds me of? It doesn't matter what name a church gives themselves. All that matters is what Jesus declares concerning that church. And the problem is sometimes we begin to deceive ourselves by our own words or even deceive ourselves by our own actions when Jesus is saying there's there's trouble here. Listen, the past deeds of Sardis gave them the reputation among other churches for being alive. But the present deeds show quite a different picture. And this is where we need to be awakened to the reality. This this doesn't just, it's not just true of Sardis. It can be true of many churches. And if we're not careful, even us. Again, most churches die long before they cease to exist. Research indicates that approximately 65% of churches in the U.S. are either plateauing or are in decline. So in the U.S., 9% of churches in the U.S. are plateauing, and 56% are in decline. And some will say, well, praise God for the 35% that are doing good, that are growing. And yet, unfortunately, statistics tell us that those 35% of churches that are growing aren't growing because they're reaching the lost. They're growing because they're reaching people that are unhappy and the churches that are dying, and they're offering cooler experiences, and people are flowing and running to them as quick as possible. So the picture is churches that are growing are growing, yet the population of hell is not decreasing at all. Which tells us, brothers and sisters, we have a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. Now some people will say, well, a few years back, many years ago, it used to be 80% were, were plateauing. Now it's only 65%, so praise God. But in that, in like just, I mean, we're sitting around patting ourselves in the back that, okay, a little over 50% are, are, are living or are dying, but, but the rest of us are okay. I mean, what in the world has happened? Think about this. Every year, more than 4,000 churches in the U.S. will close. That's 11 churches a day that are closing. To bring it home, the Southern Baptist Convention, every day, nine, or excuse me, every year, 900 churches in the SBC will close, meaning two and a half churches a day in the Southern Baptist Convention are closing 
their doors. And then to bring it home, every year 2.7 church members fall away into activity, never to darken the door of the church again. This translates, brothers and sisters, we have a problem. And as I said last week, if there's a problem between us and Jesus, we can guarantee it. The problem's not with him. The problem's with us. The problem's with us. Brothers and sisters, the church, here's the deal. We are plagued with sitting around having petty disagreements within the church. The church is plagued with ineffective preaching. And let me just say this. Listen, there are many and probably most preachers that preach the gospel better than I do. But no one preaches a better gospel than I do. This is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So many preach better than I do, but nobody preaches about a better subject than we do. Just holding the gospel to what it is. But then you have plaguing the church no desire whatsoever to grow. People who are content with where they are, with doing the things that they've been doing for years, and then little to no evangelism or discipleship. On Thursday, I I took mom to um, Waycross to meet her sisters for a sister trip that they are taking. So they said they were going to try to watch today um, online. So mom, Aunt Martha, Uncle Dove, Aunt Lily, hope you're here. And, of course, anybody else watching, thank you for joining us. But in the midst of our driving, we were talking and talking about all kind of different things. We were solving many problems of life, um, but we were also talking about the church. And in talking about the church, First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, mom began to share all the things that she prays for concerning our church. And she went on, and she went on, and she went on, and she went on. And on my way back, I was thinking, what if, let's just take each individual person, what if God answered your prayers for your church this week? Every prayer that you prayed for your church this week, what if God answered it this week? What would be different here? And here's the problem. For most people, nothing would change. Nothing would change because most of the time we don't even think about, when it comes to church, only, the only person most people think about when it comes to church is themselves. Themselves, about how can I get from church what I need the most and everybody else who cares about. And brothers and sisters, in doing so, we've forgotten the fact that, listen, the number one job of the church is not to make you happy. The number one job in the church is not to pat you on the back. The number one job in the church is to lift him up and to make sure people know that Jesus saves And if we're not doing that, then what in the world are we doing? What are we doing? Are we praying? Are we desiring growth? Here's the thing that I I picked up on from the conversation with Ann Strickland. She does not want the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way to die, and I don't either. And even better than that, Jesus doesn't either. He doesn't either. Brothers and sisters, the church condemned for its reality. May that reality never be true of us. And then third, the third truth, the church is then commended for its remnant. The church is commended for its remnant. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. And it says, For they are worthy. Meaning there were still some in Sardis who were clinging to life, who wanted for the church what Jesus wanted for the church. There were a few that, according to Jesus, who had not soiled their garments. So like Like soiled garments, most of the people in Sardis were 
filthy and unclean, but not this remnant. And here's the beautiful thing. God always has a remnant. This is the picture of the word of God. God always has a remnant. I think of the events of 1 Kings 19. So in 1 Kings 18, Elijah kind of went against, toe-to-toe against 450 prophets of Baal. He prayed a 63-word prayer, called down fire from heaven, and then um, sees a, a famine that had been upon, no rain upon the earth for three and a half years, sees that, breaks. And everything that you could think about that um, Elijah was controlling. And just think about the power here by faith in God, doing what God had called him to do. And yet we get to 1 Kings 19, one chapter later. And Jezebel, wicked Queen Jezebel, wants Elijah dead. And now Elijah, who had just stood against 450 prophets of Baal, he runs. And he prays and he says, God, just take my life. Just take my life, God. Just take me away. There's a little discourse between Elijah and between God. And you see it here on the screen, 1 Kings 19. It says this, Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord. And then Elijah said, and I, even I only am left. So Elijah's talking to God and Elijah's saying, God, I'm the only one that cares. I'm the only one that's still seeking you. And then in verse 18, it says this. The Lord said to him, yet I will leave 7,000 Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And I don't know if you caught this, but God in this moment just told Elijah, Elijah, things are 7,000 times better than you think they are. Because there are 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee. There are 7,000 people that have not kissed Baal. And here's the point, brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we begin to believe we're the only ones. And sometimes it's true. I thank God for the faithful remnant who held on in Sardis when the easy thing could have been to just abandon ship. And here's the truth. And I, I've seen and I heard, I've heard of a lot of churches that were dead, were compromised, were uncaring, were hard-hearted, and were absolutely horrendous churches. I mean, you want to talk to most people about their opinions of the church? Go talk to waitresses about how people, um, what they think about church members that come in on Sunday after church. And that'll tell you how many people are perceived. That's a whole other message for a whole other day. So if you're going to go and be bad and do all that kind of stuff, remember, you go to Ocean Way Assembly. So just just keep that in mind. And so, and I got that on video. So anyway, we'll, we'll go back around. But here's the deal. Even in those churches, even in those churches where horrendous, terrible things are happening, there's still, throughout, throughout my time of hearing, there's still people who are there who love the Lord, who want their church to survive, who are walking with the Lord, who are desiring the Lord, who care about the church. And here's the frustrating part for them. In their minds, here's what they're thinking. If I leave, the church could be over. Like, if, if I'm the only one that cares, if I'm the only one that's wanting us to grow and everybody else doesn't, if I leave, what will happen to my church? It's a lose-lose scenario. And yet Jesus comes to these remnant, and he says, he declares their worth. First of all, he's not saying, guys, you guys are awesome. He's saying, you're worthy because I've made you worthy. And then think about this. In Ephesians, we're called as Christians to walk worthy of the calling by which we've been called. And there's so many different pictures there of our calling, but here's, what it, here's the deal. When it comes to the church, here's what our calling is, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Walk worthy of the calling. So the church is commended for its remnant, and then fourth, the church is called to righteousness. 
The church is called to righteousness. So let's, let's look at verses 2 and 3 and then verse 5. Let's walk through this. So listen to Jesus in verse 2. He says, wake up. So the church now resembles the, the, the city of Sardis who had fallen asleep and been defeated. And Jesus is saying, wake up. And then he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. So let me pause for a second. Remember, remember what? What are they to remember? And the answer is this, the gospel. They are to remember the gospel. Did you know that, that every day, every day you and I, we preach to ourselves? In fact, no one preaches to you more than you preach to you. Every day we, we preach to ourselves. We talk to ourselves. But the problem is a lot of what we say are things that go against this book. Well, I'm just cursed. Everything is against me. Everybody just wants me down. God's just not going to show up. All of these things. And brothers and sisters, we begin to say those things, and they go against this. We spend all of our time saying everything is against me when the Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? And yet we're, we're preaching the wrong things over ourselves. And Jesus is saying here, remember, remember the gospel. You received it. You heard it. And he says, keep it. Keep the gospel. Keep it centered in your thought. Keep it centered in your conversation. Stop quoting lies over yourself and start quoting the truth. Start declaring truthful things over your life. And then it says this, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's a scary thought. And then look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And this is when it gets really, really good. For when believers in the Bible are shown in white, it's always to show that they wear the righteousness, the purity, the sinlessness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's the picture. It represents forgiveness. When Jesus died, he cleansed us from our sin. So get this. We're not just forgiven. We're clean. We're clean. Therefore, and this is when it gets really good, in Christ you are no longer defined by what you have done. You are no longer defined by what has been done to you. You are now defined by what Jesus has done for you. Let me say it again. In Christ you are no longer defined by what you have done. You are no longer defined by what has been done to you. You are defined by what Jesus has done for you. And yes, there are times where we feel dirty, we feel guilty, we feel unworthy, we feel shame. But in those moments, we need to be reminded that when Jesus looks at us, he sees us wrapped in his righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand the righteousness of Christ. And then Jesus says this, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Now, a lot of people have interpreted this to mean that we can lose our salvation, but of course, we don't believe that because of we don't take one verse and um, put it over what everything else. We interpret one verse in light of all of it. But here's the deal. In, in Athens, whenever any citizen was sentenced um, to be executed for a crime, their name was first erased from the role of citizenship. So several Bible scholars believe that the book of life contains the names of every living person. But that when unbelievers die, God removes their name from the book of life. And what's left is only those who have trusted 
Christ. The beautiful picture to those, Jesus goes on in verse 5, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said in Matthew 10, If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Jesus will acknowledge the name of the overcomer as evidence of Jesus saying, I know him. I know her. They are mine. I want to end today with the words of W.A. Criswell, who tells the story of the Covenanters in Scotland. I encourage you to look them up. The Covenanters were a small group who were hunted and shot down like animals. They were poor, humble people that gathered gathered together in cottages to pour over the scriptures, to pray to God, and to encourage one another to be strong in the faith. They were called covenanters because they had actually covenanted together to read the Bible, to pray, to encourage each other, which is what they were doing. And Isabel Brown was married to John Brown, who was called the Covenanter. So he was the the leader here. He loved the Lord, and he humbly would go into these houses, these cottages, and he would read the Bible, he would kneel in prayer, and he would teach these individuals the Word of God. But in so doing, he was um, put a target was put on his back. Men would hunt and, and track him down. One of the enemies of the church in Scotland was a man named Claverhouse who took six soldiers to the house of John Brown desiring to kill him. They called him outside the house and they brought his wife out of the house who was holding their newborn baby. When she came out, John Brown asked if he might be allowed to pray. And in being allowed to pray, he got on his knees and he sought the Lord. And then he stood up fearfully or fearlessly, excuse me, and courageously. The soldiers lined up before him, and they were called by Claverhouse to execute, and none of them could. They laid down their muskets, and they said, we can't do it. Claverhouse cursed them in the name of the church. He took the pistol. He walked up to John Brown, and he shot him in the head. And John Brown fell down dead. Claverhouse then turned to Isabel Brown, his wife, and said, And what do you think of your fine husband now? To which she responded, Sir, I thought good of him, much good of him in life, and now much more in death. Brothers and sisters, for those who are worthy, Jesus declares he will confess our name before his Father and before his angels. Therefore, in light of these promises, may we turn away from stale religion. May we turn away from doing anything for the sake of the church that's not done, filled by the Spirit of God, for the sake of the glory of God. And let me end this way. If you feel the stiffness of spiritual rigor mortis beginning to set in in your life, you might say, I have no idea what that means. Here's what that means. Do you love Jesus as much as you used to? Does your heart burn with passion for Christ like it used to? Do you have a desire for him like you once did? And maybe you're hearing the answer is I've never had that. Well, then today should be the day of salvation for you. Understand his worth. Understand what he's done for you. Call upon his name. and The the word says you will be saved. Turn away from sin. Turn to him. But for the child of God, brother and sister, does your heart beat for Christ like it used to? And if it doesn't, the problem isn't with Christ. It's not, the problem is not with him. It's with our heart. To us, Christ would say, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Don't let it die.
Maybe that's the message for us today as a church. Church, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. That's, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray and then call the musicians forward and enter to, to a time of invitation and consecration where whatever the Lord is telling us, may we do it. But let us pray together. Father, we seek you in this moment as a church desiring God life. Lord, we want life. Lord, we don't want death to reign. We don't want to do things, God, in our own power and our own strength for our glory apart from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to do things, God, empowered by you, ultimately, God, for you. And, Lord, we want life. We want life, God, that relates to, Lord, we, we want growing ministries. We want ministries that make much of you, that serve our community and our world, that make converts and disciples, Lord, that, God, get into each other's lives and live out one another. We want all of those things, but we don't want any of those things, God, apart from you. Lord, we must have you. You are all we need. Lord, I pray that you would be all that we want. As we're about to sing a song that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. If there's any in this room today that has never done that, may today be the day of salvation. For others, it's a call to once again continue to follow Jesus. Get off the sidelines to get up from our fall follow him again. Jesus, have your way. Father, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name.